You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to a new episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Governor Pritzker has now signed into law the Keeping Youth Safe and Healthy Act. The measure is designed to update the standards for comprehensive sexual health education in grades 6 through 12 in public schools in Illinois, as well as adopt guidelines for this education in grades K through 5. It turns out that this law was not secured without opposition. Today, we're going to talk about comprehensive sexual health education, the Keeping Youth Safe and Healthy Act, what is in the legislation, a little bit about what is not in the legislation, and then a discussion about how the ACLU and others are planning to get the word out about this new law. To help us discuss all of this, we are pleased to be joined by two guests. Returning to the podcast is Chelsea Diaz, an advocate associate for the ACLU of Illinois, who worked directly on shaping and passing the new law. We're also extremely pleased to be joined by Scout Bratt. They are the Outreach and Education Director at the Chicago Women's Health Center. Chelsea and Scout, welcome to the podcast. So Chelsea and Scout, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us to discuss this today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So Chelsea, let me start with kind of a big question. So why did we need to update our sexual health education standards for students in Illinois? Why was it important to do that this year? So thinking back to 2011 to 2012, the first time that we updated our sexual health education laws, it was quite a battle to get to where that law was before this one was passed. And so with that bill, we were able to get standards that included abstinence and contraception but we weren't able to get other parts of the bill that we wanted moved. So for example, Illinois' law on sexual health education says that we must teach, honor, and respect heterosexual monogamous marriage. And in addition to that not aligning with our current state law on marriage equality, that is really harmful to all the different folks living across the state of Illinois, both young and old and in between and knowing that that is not the values that we have here in Illinois. And so it was really important to change that specifically, but also to make sure that young people are getting the full range of information they need. We know learning about abstinence and contraception is simply not enough for young people to make responsible and informed decisions for themselves and what they think is best for themselves. So it was way overdue. And and Chelsea, are there any other areas that are covered by national standards that you've been able to write into what is now this new law? Yes, there's plenty more of it. Young people are now going to be able to get the full range of information. So as I mentioned before, the law was currently limited to absence and contraception, but the new standards have seven topic strands, as they're called, that cover the range of information. And so that includes sexual health, which includes pregnancy and reproduction, It also includes healthy relationships and consent, talking about interpersonal violence and how to prevent that, puberty and adolescent growth and anatomy and physiology as well. And so we have a wide range of information that we're giving young folks to make the best decisions for them. Again, that's not only limited to their sexual health, but to all types of relationships that they have so they can can have the best relationships and livelihood that they want. 
So, Scout, I want to step back for just a moment here and sort of ask from your perspective, why is teaching comprehensive and inclusive sexual health education so important for young people? Why, why does it matter, I guess? Thank you for asking. It matters because it centers young people's relationships with themselves and their bodies and their identities as key to building healthy relationships. When we give people information and opportunities to practice using that information, skills and tools for using and implementing that information, we are actually building healthier communities. Sex ed is more than just navigating the details of hormones. It is talking about how we communicate what we need and what we want and how we feel about our bodies, about our relationships, about other people in order for our world to be safer and more affirming for everyone. So to me, the question is also, how could we not teach sex ed? How could we not prioritize this content if we are working to make sure young people have the resources they need and deserve to live their fullest, healthiest lives? I want to pick up on the, the point about interpersonal safety and, and, and healthy relationships in that way, because I think... I think it's fair to say that in public discourse, we tend to focus just on the hormonal or anatomy or things like that. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, is that something you have to kind of build building blocks for from a very young age in terms of thinking about interpersonal relationships and, and, and those being healthy and, and welcoming and fulfilling? Yeah, great question. Absolutely. And I will say that we are doing that work, by the way, when we pressure children to hug relatives they may not know or don't remember or feel uncomfortable with, we are giving messages and educating people from a very young age about interpersonal relationships. We want to be proactive in building messages that are of consent. A culture of consent should be built, can be built, and by many people, we are able to do that from an early age, and it helps people integrate that information into different relationships that they may build throughout their lives. So consent should be something that's a part of our relationships with children as we are caregivers or family members or parents or teachers, and they are hopefully going to create the foundation for those young people to then build their own relationships, whether they're sexual or romantic, whether they're friendships, whether it's with roommates in their future lives that uphold best practices of consent too. And really, that's something that, as you described that, and you had talked about that, that's something that benefits us across generations and across different kinds of relationships in that way. You know, the old tradition of, of the young child being, you know, brought in and paraded around the table to kiss and hug everybody there, that the adults ought to understand that that maybe is not the best approach, huh? Yeah, I mean, it is clear to me that we have adults who are now caring for young people or educating young people who they themselves also need to unlearn some of the ways in which consent was not a part of their upbringing. So we also know that non-consent or not having a consent culture actually has had generational impacts and ripple effects of the way that we are currently educating young folks. I think what this bill really does is encourage us to shift culture and do it ongoingly from a really young age. And part of what a benefit may be is that adults who are either observing their young people in this lesson plan or, or experiencing this education, those who are facilitating it, those who are part of schools and noticing the impact that this education is having on the general school culture, they're also going to participate in this culture. So 
it is actually about shifting the way in which we relate to consent throughout our society, not just in our schools. So Chelsea, let, let me ask, I think, a couple of questions about the new law itself. Does it actually make the teaching of sex education mandatory in public schools across Illinois? It does not. So it does not mandate sexual health education in schools. If schools choose to teach sexual health education and or comprehensive personal health and safety education, which is for grades K through five, and sexual health education applies to grades through 12, then schools will follow the standards, which are the national sex education standards, and what else is adopted by the state of Illinois as well. So if they choose to teach it, they have to teach it in line with both national standards and state-developed standards, but, but there's nothing in the law that says you must teach this or you must teach it in this way. Yes, exactly. And the good news is that schools that are already teaching sexual health education will align in part with those standards. So if you're already teaching about abstinence and contraception, those are part of the standards. If you're already teaching about sexual orientation and identity and gender expression, those are already in the standards. So if anything, schools that are teaching sexual health education, they'll get more guidance to be comprehensive and inclusive. And if they're taking anything out, it's going to be because they're not being inclusive, they're using harmful language, they're not gonna be removing key parts of their curriculum because of this bill. But that curriculum is still all developed, all controlled at the local level. Yes, exactly. So there's not a specific set of lesson materials, classroom activities, et cetera, that schools are being told that they must use. It's learning standards that teachers are very familiar with, with other topics. They have math learning standards, reading learning standards, and now they have very clear guidance with these sexual health education standards that will help them be even, even better than they are now. Okay, so if there are standards, now I'll just say, when I was in school, when I was in high school, for example, the math standards just slayed me. I couldn't keep up with math, but my parents couldn't opt me out. Can parents still continue to opt kids out of, of sexual health education under the law? Yes, they can. So that is a provision we kept that was in the previous law that parents are able to opt their children out of this education if they choose to. And then students will be given alternative assignments that could be relevant to those topics or relevant to other topics that they're learning about as well. Scout, let me just say this is not a surprise. The bill had some opposition when it was in the General Assembly, and it appears that there were legislators who, who didn't like this. I wonder, again, as someone who deals in this curricula every day, who, who sees the impact that it has on young people, I wonder what you think sort of drives the opposition to teaching a comprehensive, inclusive sexual health education curriculum. What, why is there opposition in your mind? Well, you know, I think there is a lot of fear about giving young people information that helps them make decisions for themselves and their bodies. We, in general, do not trust young people. And in our society today, there are lots of ways in which we shield or even try to shelter young people from information about their bodies. We keep people from being able to make their own decisions about when to go to the bathroom in schools in many contexts. And so I do think that this might prompt adults who are in school settings or people who are working with young people or even those who may be making decisions about this bill but don't have relationships with young people maybe prompts fear that if we give this information to young people that they will start having sex at an earlier age and some may consider that to not be healthy. We know that that is actually inaccurate. Access to information about practicing 
safer sex, both in terms of our emotional selves, our relational selves, and our physical selves, does not lead to people having sexual relationships or experiences at an earlier age. We actually know that comprehensive sex ed increases people's likelihood of using methods of prevention like STI or STD protection, like condoms, or pursuing pregnancy prevention methods like a hormonal method of birth control. So information does not lead to an increased frequency of sex among young people. No, it does not. It does lead people to be able to have time and space for asking questions and getting more information to consider how they may implement that information at any point in their life, if ever. Because the other piece that's really important about this curricula is that it also includes talking specifically about people who are not interested in having sexual relationships. Asexual people, people who are on the asexual spectrum, including aromantic people who may not be interested in having romantic relationships, that content is also important here. And so we also, in assuming that people who get sexual health education will automatically engage in sexual relationships or behaviors, are actually erasing and excluding and silencing people who, for whom that is not actually an important part of their lives. So I'm much older than either of you. And one of the things that I've heard throughout my adult life about this, from some legislators, from some policymakers, and from some parent scout is the suggestion that this is subject matter that's best covered by a parent in a home. What do you say to that? Like, how do you answer that question when you get that one? I would say that having an opportunity to learn about sexual health education in school does not mean that those conversations can't happen in other contexts like home or people's own communities, spiritual communities or religious communities, or in smaller friend groups in neighborhoods. We at Chicago Women's Health Center have actually worked with a variety of different organizations and schools who create space for having sexual health education, comprehensive sex ed, in different configurations. And so we know that school-based sexual health education and family-based sexual health education can coexist. And there may be ways in which actually having conversations in multiple places can further support young people in normalizing these types of conversations. But actually, yes, we're going to talk about puberty in lots of different contexts. And the way that we feel having conversations about puberty changes at home may be different than how we talk about it in schools. Most importantly, if school is a place for folks to come and get resources and learn how to live their lives as healthily as possible or in as healthy a way as possible, excluding these conversations from school settings could actually be more harmful for young folks. And I presume that a young person could get information at school that actually may lead to a conversation with their parents and at home that just underscores, reinforces, and helps in terms of just those kind of consent, healthy relationships, all of those issues that you're talking about. Absolutely. And when I spoke a bit about how this framework could actually ensure a whole community benefiting from comprehensive sex ed, one way that we have seen this work well in our class relationship, one way we've seen this work well with our schools is we've actually followed up with a day of lesson plans by emailing the school contact with some key points that we covered in our classes and some key questions that adult allies who work with those young people, who maybe live with young people in our classes, could start conversations with. So today we talked about gender. Here's a question for you to consider asking when you see your young person next. And that also provides, one, 
deeper connection to this content for the adult allies, and two, encouragement that these conversations don't end after a 50-minute class period. These are the conversations that we weave into our lives and our everyday relationships. And so they should be open to and engaging with lots of different contexts for young people. I love that notion about the continuum of it, right? It, it just not in school, but, but overall, I think that's really just a really beautiful concept. Chelsea, uh, one of the elements of the law is about data collection. And I, I wonder if you can tell us more about what's in the bill specifically about data collection around comprehensive sex ed. Yeah, of course. So in lots of conversations we have with legislators trying to get this bill passed, well, how many schools are teaching it? And our answer was, we don't know. We have a data collection component in the bill so we can find out. Wait, uh, wait, I want to stop. So literally in Illinois, there is nobody who knows how many schools are teaching sex ed. No. That seems like a bad plan. I just say I, that seems like a bad idea. I think especially when we hear from Scout about how important this education is, right? And how much it can change folks' lives for the better. And so our bill has a five-year data collection component that would be reported to the General Assembly. And so every year, starting in the, in the upcoming year, schools will have to report if they're teaching sexual health education, because again, it's not mandated. If they do teach it, what curricula they're using, again, because there's not a specified curricula, what materials they're using. If they use a third-party educator, like the Chicago Women's Health Center, we'd like to know who they're using. And then how many students are receiving it and how many students opt out. And that information is going to give us a sense of, you know, how many schools are teaching it, what are they using, and how many students are opting in or out. And that gives us information to further help support those schools and implementation. And so if the school is saying, I'm only using XYZ curricula because I don't know what else to use, then the, the ACLU and many of our other coalition partners like the Chicago Women's Health Center can say, well, here are some excellent resources that we've had from these range of experts to help you give the best education you can. I, I want to just pick up on that, um, um, on a piece of that data that you're collecting for just a second. If I saw that the opt-outs were high, would that suggest, and I guess this is really for both of you, might it suggest that the curricula is not quite age appropriate or that there may be something about it that you would need to rethink or look at or reconsider for making sure that it, it reaches the broadest number of students? My instinct is to say no, because schools will have information sessions with parents. They tell them what, what young people are learning, and, and, and we still have low opt-out rates. So just in general, I think it's helpful to name that opt-out rates for this education are low, and that schools and parents do have the option to review curriculum that's also in our bill. So now we are making it in law to review the scope and sequence of material, and opt-out rates are low. So I would say that if there are opt-out rates, which are unlikely, I don't think that's reflective of the curriculum itself. Specifically, it may be more reflective of, of community-specific values that they may have around this education as a whole. Scout, you look like you went in on this. Sure. I, I agree with Chelsea. And what it would prompt in me is not a reevaluation of the curriculum, but communication with individual communities. And to say, like, in what way does this not resonate? What is prompting your opting out? And let's potentially provide an opportunity for education. Because as I said before, how much of this opting out or this opposition is about actual knowledge of what is in the curriculum and the reasoning, the research behind comprehensive sex ed as a healthy option, as a tool for creating healthy communities, and how much of it is about fear. So 
to me, it actually is an invitation for more community-based conversations. One of the things that, Chelsea, you, you mentioned is this idea of parents being able to go in and review the curricula or ask questions of the teacher. You know, that seems like a process that invites this kind of communication back and forth and a, a, a maybe a little more deeper understanding of what the goals of the curricula are in the first instance. Yeah, exactly. And I think over the course of the two years that we've been working on this and conversations I had, I've had with people who may have been reluctant or uninformed about the issue, whether that be parents, legislators, or other stakeholders, once we dig into what this actually means and what this education looks like, their minds change. And they go, oh, I, I want my young person to be learning about that. Or yes, I think this is the best practice for the state. So I think a lot of it ultimately does come down to misinformation and fear-mongering. Which I would also say can in many ways parallel a classroom process. When young people hear that they're gonna have sex ed and there's not a clarity of what that means, when we come in and we say, hey, we're gonna talk about our bodies and we're gonna talk a little bit about how we can maybe feel nervous about talking about our bodies. We get more buy-in and more participation from students when we are actually able to break it down into terms that are more approachable and more understanding, when we create space for them to ask questions and weave their questions into our content and our approach to how we teach sex ed. And I think that's what this bill is also making possible, is for there to actually be space for us as community members, whether we're students or we're caregivers or adult allies, to voice any concerns we have and to have community-based conversations about our health, because we know this is a public health issue, and so it should be solved in the public. It should be solved and addressed in our communities. It's a really interesting notion that in some ways that conversation can be something we really get a chance to all kind of weigh in on this in a way that, that could be more enlightening and more uplifting for an entire community. I love that. And I have an example that I was hoping to be able to share because I thought it was really powerful and so surprising in our, in one of the four debates to get this bill passed, we had a legislator stand up who was a person of faith and said, as a person of faith, as a pastor in my church, we have taught the opposite of this. But over time, I've learned how important this is. And this bill has showed me And this legislator who I will say is not a young person had said in, in their floor debate that they had to turn to their colleague next to them to ask them what a dental dam was during the debate on this bill and to Scout's point about this being community learning like, and how adult allies still have their own work to do or some adult allies have their own work to do. Like that was a really powerful moment for me to see this person that like, I'm learning on the fly here. And so since I'm learning on the fly at my age, then I think these young people should definitely be getting this information and not finding it out at the same as I am now. And so, yeah, I think that just reinforces Scout's point that there's a lot of community learning to do and that this bill is going to be a catalyst, not just for young folks, but all of our communities. Well, I have to say, you know, we certainly all still have a lot of learning to do about a lot of things, right? I mean, it's an ongoing process throughout life. And I love the fact that we're focusing on bringing these things to, to young people even earlier, at, you know, in the K through five grade period now with, with the new law. So Chelsea, is there anything else in this bill we really haven't touched on that we should emphasize and, and let people know about? Yeah, I think in addition to the data collection component and the national sex education standards, I would like to highlight two things. And the first is just combating the misinformation around the age appropriateness. We've heard a lot about the different standards aren't appropriate for the different the age groups that they're being taught to, but 
We have to keep in mind that these were developed by a wide range of independent experts in the field of adolescent development, psychology, sexual health, et cetera. And so, you know, there is research to back the age appropriateness of the legislation and the standards themselves. And that's really important to recognize. And I think as I touched on earlier that the previous law was really stigmatizing and harmful to folks who may, who may identify being LGBTQ plus, and in addition also to pregnant and parenting youth who through the bill in its previous form were shamed. Um, with that language. And so we're really proud that this bill is affirming of all identities to Scout's point, including folks who may who may be asexual or aromantic, and also is not shaming or stigmatizing to pregnant and parenting youth as well. And we're really excited for all Illinois young people to get the education they deserve. Yeah, that the, the inclusive nature of that is really important. But I do just want to underscore one more time, because I think it's something I heard a lot in the discussions and debate around this bill, is that the national standards still are not the local curricula. That's still the job of the local school board and the local leaders to create that curricula. Yes, exactly. And I think a great analogy that I've used is the standards are, if you're taking a road trip, the standards is the last stop on the road trip. And then the curriculum is all the stops you're taking in between to be able to get to that end goal. And so the standards are a guiding light for teachers. And then it's up to them to determine the best curriculum that will get them to that standard. So thinking about that a little bit and thinking about this conversation, like so much of this is really about kind of communicating this out, right? It's like sharing this in a way that people young, old, in between can understand this. And I know that one of the things, Chelsea, you've been working on as part of this and that the ACLU is going to release is, is a zine to sort of talk about this work in these areas. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that project. Yes, I would love to talk about that project. And so, as you mentioned, we're working on a zine to be published soon, which will be a public education tool for this bill. It's called The Talk, you know, that one. And it was written entirely by a group of high school students at the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And my colleague Kimberly and I mentored them and helped them navigate the drafting process. And it was designed by another student who is a graphic design student. And so we are really excited to have this zine made that was created and intended for young people to empower them to learn more about sexual health education and be kind of opening the door to having those conversations and give them information on how to advocate to make sure that this bill is implemented in their schools as well. So Scout, I just wonder from your perspective as an educator, is you know something like what Chelsea describes in this zine, is that good material to kind of invite or introduce students to this, this broader discussion we've been having? Yes. I mean, it's really powerful to have something made by people who are potential peers right? So to have something that is centering young people's voices and perspectives and understandings around this new approach, around this core approach to comprehensive sex ed feels to me like almost the best practice built off of or out of these standards. This is essentially what the standards are recommending is that all young people, by the time they graduate, could write their own zine, could create information that's accessible to their peers and to their community members that is related to comprehensive sexual health education, personal safety, and wellness. Well, we've reached the end of our conversation. And so I I just, Chelsea and Scott, I really want to thank you for joining us and, and talking about this new law, the Keeping Youth Healthy and Safe Act. 
And frankly, I, I really do just want to congratulate both of you on the work you've done and making this bill into a law, because I know it was not always easy, but you're here and it's done. We did it. And yes, thank you. I do want to give a special thank you to Scout, because Scout has been a thought partner, I think, over the past two years. And, you know, since we started drafting this bill in 2015 or 2016, so even longer than two years, and Scout's expertise has been invaluable. Well, Scout, thank, thank you. you. Oh, yeah. Thank you all. It's been an honor to work with you and to collaborate on this work. And you have really made it possible to get as far as it already has, and I'm sure farther than it has this moment. I look forward to ongoing partnership. And now the implementation work begins. Yeah. That's our episode for today. If you want more information about the new sexual health education law in Illinois or about the zine, you can find it at our website at www.aclu-il.org. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Our podcast is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us wherever you get your podcast. You can send us an email at talkingliberties at aclu-il.org. So until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll see you soon.